0: 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I've been focusing on what I've been calling foundations, foundations for the Christian life, just taking a break from Matthew for a few weeks and I thought I would be done last week with the foundation of prayer, Uh, but in studying the New Testament and thinking about our values, uh, there was another value that just kept hitting me in the face and that was the value of holiness, how often holiness is emphasized throughout the scripture, and particularly for the church and for the people of God so that's the focus this morning the foundation of holiness and next week Lord willing we'll be looking at Jesus teaching on the end times 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 we're going to begin in verse 14 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 begin in verse 14 this morning we can survive without screens and projections we can't survive without the Bible and prayer Having screens doesn't make the church a church. It's the people of God that are the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, the word of God says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God has always called for and required and commanded holiness among his people. In the Old Testament, this is one of the reasons God gave them laws, that the laws were to create a distinction, a separation between his people and the nations. You think of those food laws, why, why they were not permitted to eat certain things. One of the reasons was so they would be distinct from the nations. They kept the Sabbath. One of the reasons for the Sabbath was to show their distinction, how they were different from the nations around them. They were prohibited from making any kind of covenants with the nations around them. There was to be a separation from God's people in the Old Testament from those that were living around them. The B- book of Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy, and as God's people in the Old Testament were to be holy and were to be separate from the nations around them, so God's people now, the church, are also to be separate. Peter, in fact, takes that very command from Leviticus about being holy, and he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. God has always expected holiness among his people. That's what this text is about. And it begins with a very clear command, a very simple command, to be distinct, to be distinct, to be different, to be separate. Look at how it's laid out in verses 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now you see that the idea of unequally yoked. This is also an, an Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, this idea was used to describe the yoking together of two animals that simply will not work together. Like the yoking of an oxen and a donkey. That an ox and a donkey will not work together, they are incompatible, it simply did not work. And so Paul the Apostle appropriates this idea from the Old Testament and applies it now to Christian relationships. Notice, it's unequally yoked with unbelievers. When we think about holiness or distinction or separation, one of the things we've heard that that is a really helpful saying is that we are in the world but not of the world, and that's true. This text, however, is more detailed than that. It's more specific than that because notice who you're not to be unequally yoked with. It's people. This text is talking about relationships. That the Christian is not to be unequally yoked or bound together with an unbeliever. Some people have used this text to show that marriage with unbelievers is prohibited. I, th- I think other texts show that more clearly. This is more broad than that. Look what else it goes on to say. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? So what you've got here is you've got these rhetorical questions that expect the answer of none or no. Partnership of righteousness and lawlessness, there's no partnership there. They don't work together. Fellowship of light and darkness, there's no fellowship there. They simply can't have fellowship. What accord, or essentially there's again this agreement, Christ with Belial, Belial being a false god? There's no, there's no accord there. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Probably the idea there of receiving inheritance. Well, from God, the idea is none. So, so you, you see these words, partnership, unequally yoked, fellowship, accord, portion. What is this pointing to? What kind of distinction is this talking about? What does this mean? It's talking about close binding agreements with unbelievers. A close-knit relationship with an unbeliever here is what is prohibited. And again, there is some tension. What we should do, I believe, and I think a helpful principle is as a Christian, you simply abstain where the Bible calls you to abstain. Because the Bible doesn't envision an idea where we're like off in some monastery and totally separated ourselves from unbelievers. That's that's not the idea here. You're always going to be around unbelievers. That's part of being in the world. And that's where that one saying is very helpful. So how are you unequally yoked? How do you not have partnership with? How are you not in accord with? Well, you look to the Word of God, and where the Word of God says to abstain, you abstain. You draw the lines where the Word of God draws the lines. Where the Bible says no, you say no. You don't transgress the boundaries that the Scripture lays down for you. That's how you maintain this distinction from unbelievers. You think about Daniel. Daniel was carried off into Babylon. Daniel did not reject the Babylonian housing Daniel did not reject the Babylonian education Daniel rejected what Scripture required him to reject which was idolatry he drew the lines where the Scripture drew the lines. Daniel 1 gives you a good example of that one of the reasons this is so important for us as believers is because the nature of sin and relationships with people sin has a contaminating effect This is why the Proverbs begin in Proverbs 1.10 with the warning of a father to the son, son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Which implies they will entice you and the response is not consenting to them. You don't give in to their wiles or their demands or their desires. Or Psalm 1, look at how the Psalms begin. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. I'm sorry, let me try again. I may need some of the Iwana kids to help me with this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of sinners, stand in the, the way of... All right, I really need some help here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of... Thank you. I'm glad some people have the Bible memorized in this room. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, what you have there in Psalm 1 is a progression of walking to standing and sitting. And the idea there is the blessed man of God does not do that. He's not influenced in that way. And this is, this is what you need to think through when you're thinking about work agreements or maybe school relationships. When you're at work, you're going to have relationships with the people you work with. You have to work with them. And, friends, I recognize this is a lot easier for me because I work with Christians. It's a lot harder for you. Or at school, what, what friendships are you going to engage in? And that, that's where this becomes very, very important. You, you need to think carefully about who you let into your life and who you get close to at work or at school or wherever it may be. Proverbs 13.20 says, whoever walks with the wise is wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So you've got to be very careful where you draw those Lines, who you open up to or who you allow to influence you because those around us do influence us. I mean, I remember when I was working construction, the guys that I worked construction with influenced the way I talked. It's just un- simply unavoidable, and we've got to be aware of that and, and be on guard of that, particularly as Christians, because of what the Scripture says here. It calls us to be distinct, unequally yoked, not to be un- unequally yoked, not, not to be in accord with, not to have partnerships or fellowship with, not to have a a portion with. We're to be distinct and we are to be different. The hope, of course, is Christians will find their best friends in the church. This is a bit idealized, but I think it's the biblical picture. Because in the church, we're supposed to be more than friends. We're brothers. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And and this, hopefully, is the, the place and the ground where we can find godly men and women to influence us for the truth rather than for darkness. So we need to be distinct from the world. Number two, you be distinct because of your relationship with God. Look at verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. You see there? What we are should change or affect the way we live. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Answer, none. Here's the reason why. For you, you Christians, are the temple of the living God. This is one of the amazing teachings in the New Testament where the Old Testament, the holiest place where God would literally dwell was the temple. Guess what the New Testament teaches? You are now the temple of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. This should affect the way that you live. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks to this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So look at what the text here says. We are the temple of the living God. You see, friends, our relationship with God, what we are, should call us to recognize the distinction we need to have with the world. We're the temple of God. God dwells in us literally and powerfully through the Holy Spirit. That should have a dramatic effect in the way that we walk and live our lives. Look at what he goes on to say. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, your relationship to God, you're God's people. What, what an amazing reality that you're the people of God. This should affect the decisions you make. This should affect the relationships and the, 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 the binding agreements that you make with people and the, the depth of relational collateral you give to others are they believers well your relationship for with God should be first and foremost and it should affect that look at the look at what 17 says for us to do based on that relationship with God there were a temple and there were his people therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord God very clearly and very specifically calls and wants his people to be separate different distinct Clearly, like a light, like a, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So the Christian is to be in the world. We're supposed to be shining lights in a dark place. Verse 17, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see what Paul's doing here is he's using these Old Testament teachings to encourage and call Christians in the church to holiness. To distinction from the world. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we be separate? What does that look like at work or at school or in our lives? Well, again, you draw the lines where the Bible draws the lines. And I've got lots of scriptures here for this. And I'll just I'll give you the references, but I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, you can look it up on your own. I encourage you to take notes and, and, and check me out on these things. Because, friends, this is something, this is something that, is, that the, the New Testament is replete with. How Christians are to live in, the, in an evil world. Ephesians chapter th- 5. The entire chapter. Ephesians chapter 5 is all about how Christians are supposed to live in the world. And how we're supposed to be different. Let me just give you a bit of a selection of this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them for at one time you were in darkness but now you're in light walk as children in the light Ephesians 5 11, take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness rather expose them and if you read on in Ephesians 5 you're not taking part you're being separate and in fact you're exposing it for what it is is that which leads them to light and to salvation It's your abstinence from sin and your using of the word of God to expose sin for what it is that leads them into the light of salvation. If you study your Old Testament, you'll find that when God's people, particularly leaders, breached these boundaries, it led to ruin. So many examples. This is is what led to Solomon's downfall. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel until Jesus Christ, of course. His son Solomon, the wisest man up until that time. Solomon's tragic downfall was a result of his heart being led away by evil influences around him. That led to the dividing of the kingdom. You know what ultimately led to the destruction of the kingdom of Judah? It was Hezekiah. You know what Hezekiah did? He showed the Babylonians around and made agreements with the Babylonians and it ultimately led to his downfall or the downfall of the nation. These matters are serious and important. And the scripture couldn't be clearer. Be separate from them, says the Lord. And you search the scripture. And you see what it says and how you're to be separate. And it's very clear with regard to sin. Very, very clear with regard to the activities you do not engage in. And that which is prohibited. You draw the lines where the Bible draws the lines. Thirdly, you're distinct because of the promises of God. You should be distinct because of the promises of God. You see, it's not only the commands of God that encourage us, like flee fornication. It's also the promises of God that encourage us to be faithful. Look at chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, what promises? You're the people of God. You're the temple of God. God will dwell among you. God will walk in your midst. You'll be sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. What amazing promises. Because of those promises, beloved, what should you do? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body. Have you done that today? Have you cleansed yourself of defilement? That which would separate you from God, that which is defined as sin in Scripture. You should cleanse yourself by repenting to God and turning from sin. And praise God, he's merciful. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, right? Not holding on to even a a little piece of it. Don't let it even be named once among you, Ephesians 5. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You stand before God as holy and righteous and just and judge. And you tremble in fear. And you recognize my behavior matters. What he says matters and what he says is clear. And the decisions I make in response to the word of God are utterly crucial for my standing in life. Be distinct because of the promises of God. Now, let me apply this, why this is important, this Christian distinction. I don't know how long this is going to be. I mean, this could be several hours, but it's not going to be that long. Um, But I really don't know, so if you've got to get up and leave, feel free. Uh, The first one's going to be short because I really want to deal with the second one. The first one, why this is important to be separate is because of, of the pervasive temptations of the world. This is something I think all of us know. The pervasive temptations of the world, right? The, the, the temptations of the world are, are ever-present, and they're never going away as long as this world stands as it does. They've been around ever since Adam and Eve sinned, and they're not going away. I mean, in our generation, they're, they're incredibly pervasive. If you have Netflix, all you've got to do is scroll through the titles in Netflix, I mean, and you just see depravity upon depravity, right? I mean, you can't even watch cartoons on Netflix because of the, the depravity of the other Previews they show you. It's frustrating. And then you're I mean you're just trying to watch benign cat videos or America's funniest videos on YouTube, and then what shows up on the right? I mean, have you ever had this happen to you? Let's watch some funny pranks. Oh, that sounds great. There's some really funny pranks on YouTube. And then on the right on your screen, there's depravity. I mean, it's it's almost as if there's a conspiracy going on to put garbage on the right while you're trying to watch a cat video. It's the pervasive temptations of the world. Popular TV shows. By the way, I'm a fantasy person, weirdo. I would love to watch Game of Thrones, but I can't. It's utterly depraved, totally depraved. I'm just saying that genre is something that I would enjoy, but they've created a show that's so utterly depraved. It's totally inconsistent with Christian holiness. Even Band of Brothers. So I'm a World War II buff. We watched Band of Brothers, by and large, a very good account of the Battle of the Bulge. But then like in the next to the last episode, there's an absolutely unnecessary scene. Why? Because of the pervasive temptations of the world and because it's put out by Hell's box office, right? I mean, they can't just tell a story about World War II. They have to put Hell in it. I mean, history's not enough. We've got to add a bit of Hell. What would you expect from HBO Hell's box office? then, of course, there's the depravity of the Internet. The pervasive temptations of the world, friends, is why this is so important. And these relationships that we have and that we build and that we can establish in the world can lead us down dark paths, and God is very clear, be separate. Be separate. Come out from them. What I want to focus on more, though, today and apply this text in one of the ways it applies is the pervasive confusion in the church. And I think some of this I'm projecting because I'm planning on going to the Southern Baptist Convention tomorrow. And these meetings bring up certain conversations I've had over the years. This text, I I believe, incredibly applies always to the church and the Christian life, but particularly to being a a Southern Baptist in 2018, 19, and into the future. I I just want to address one piece of confusion today, which is multifaceted. And th- that is the prevailing notion. It's a prevailing notion that to reach the world, you must become like the world. That's, that's just a mentality and a philosophy that is prevalent. And I want to say the Bible teaches the opposite. The, and I hope you could clearly see it in the text that we just read through. And I, There are a myriad others. It is utterly wrong to think that to reach the world, you become like the world. I would argue it's the exact opposite based on this text here, which I will in due time. One of the things Baptists have done, very helpfully oftentimes in the past, they've come up with confessions of faith. Just a, a summary, here's what we believe. We use the Baptist faith in Message 2000. It has a great statement on Scripture. Well, here's, here's a confession of faith from one Southern Baptist church. Their first statement on the confession of faith was Bible authority, which is great. If you look at confessions of faith throughout history, that's usually the first one. Here's what we believe about the Bible. That's the most important thing. It's where we drive our beliefs from. You know what number two? Number two on this church's list is cultural relevance. Well, that's interesting. First of all, I've never seen that in a confession of faith before. Second of all, I really don't see that in the Bible. But listen to what this church says. Now keep in mind in this discussion, this is by and large dealing with people, Christians, who are brothers who I think are just wrong. I'm sorry, I just don't know any other way to say it. And the reason I'm teaching about it to you is because I think it's my job to equip you with how you think biblically. And this is a major issue. And it's a growing issue. Cultural relevance. What is that? Here's what it says, according to them, quote, although the message of the gospel will never change, our methodologies and strategies must always be fluid. In a rapidly changing culture, the church must always be willing to do whatever it takes to communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel in a relevant and meaningful way. This must never be optional. I don't believe the apostles thought that way. I don't think this is a biblical or Christian way of thinking. I don't think if you read the scripture, you'll find the apostles ever concerned with being relevant to the culture. I think their their desire and determination is always to proclaim The gospel, regardless of culture, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, here's where this gets tricky. And this is where you really need to listen if you're interested. Because this takes biblical critical thinking. Because this is a tricky issue, and here's why. Because these brothers who use these methodologies... Begin with and start with a godly good motive that I think all of us would agree with. And that is the motive to see people saved. I mean, we would all, I think, as Christians, we want to see more, more people saved. We want to see churches grow. We want to see churches full of people. I mean, we want that. That is a good and that is a biblical and that is a godly motive. I think where it gets tricky is the methodology is, I believe it's from the pit. Don't know any other way to say it. It's a good motive. It's a godless methodology, oftentimes. Here's the problem. We're not seeing a lot of people saved. We want to see more saved. Really, by the way, just like Jesus' day, the apostles come to Jesus, I mean, are not more going to be saved? That's another aside. But we see the problem of we want to see more people saved. Here's my answer to that. Here's what I think the Bible's answer to that is. We want to see more people saved, right? Here I think are biblical answers to that. We'll proclaim the gospel. Well, we're doing that. We'll keep doing that. Equip saints to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples and to do evangelism. I think that's what the Bible teaches. You know what? You should, if you we're not seeing people say, I agree. What should we do? Pray. Fast. Be serious in your reaching out. Be bold in your evangelism. Do good works. Right? Let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think those are biblical responses to this problem of people not being saved. In fact, th- this statement of faith says you need to have methodologies and strategies that are fluid. Here's a methodology and a strategy that is not fluid, not fluid. 2 Corinthians 4.2. We've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to the consciences of other men. It's by open statement of the truth. Here's, another, here's a methodology for pastors. Here's a methodology for pastors that is not fluid or cultural. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to show yourself approved to God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There are methodologies that are not fluid, but rather r- rigorously biblical. Here's the solution of many other people to the problem of people not being saved. We need some new methodology to reach them. We've got to do something different. Uh, maybe we can become more like them so they'll like us better. Like, for instance, these millennials. Right? We want to see more people in their 20s saved. The, the people in their 20s, they like Marvel movies. Let's be the church that does Marvel movies. And by the way, I'm being 100% serious here. This is an, a, a methodology happening right now. Let's be the church that likes Marvel movies. Then, then the, the millennial who likes Marvel movies, right? Maybe, like, maybe Thor is his favorite guy. He comes to the church. Well, that's a group that I want to be a part of. I could be part of the Marvel church group or the Marvel group. But what's he joining? What brings him in? Why is he there? And what's going to happen to him? I don't think that will lead to holiness. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Cuz this methodology of cultural relevance almost ultimately leads to or has built into its thinking giving people what they want to reach them. Another methodology that is utterly contrary to scripture. Utterly contrary. 1 Corinthians 1:18. 1, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. By the Okay, so to those that are perishing, how do they consider the cross? What is it to them? According to this verse, it is folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice there's two groups here. And these two groups view the cross in two very different ways. Those that are perishing view the cross as folly. To us who are being saved, view the cross as power. Now drop down to 1 Corinthians 1.20. 1 Corinthians 1.20. Here's Paul's dealings in Corinth. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see how people are saved? It's through what the world regards as folly, not what they regard as wisdom. It's what they regard as folly, namely the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and trusting him to bring you to God. That's how God saves those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, so so there's the seeker demanding what they want. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But, okay, in contrast to what they want or demand, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. I want to give you two problems with this methodology. Number one, these new methodologies often adjust the gospel and dilute the truth. Sometimes this is unintended. This, By the way, this movement uh, is very broad and is really hard to to dissect into one focus, but in general, they often adjust the gospel and dilute the truth. Because as methodologies are adjusted based on non-biblical means, the gospel almost always gets adjusted to fit. Like for instance, all you gotta do And by the way, this is prevalent in church planting. Just just go on to, um, just just do your own research. And go look at a bunch of new churches, these new churches following this kind of methodology. Just look at their sermon series. Look at what the sermons are titled. Look at the text that they're taken from. You're not going to find things like those who go to the lake of fire. There's going to be doctrines that are absolutely avoided quite often and common. Because, really, if your starting goal is to, to reach people by becoming like them, you're not going to talk to them about the things Jesus talks about oftentimes. You just do your own research. I, I was talking to a pastor a couple weeks ago. This is honest to goodness truth. I was talking to a, a guy a few weeks ago and dialoguing with him about this very thing because he's one of these leaders. And I'm just trying to ask questions, really just trying to understand their movement a a little better. Not really engaging biblically, just trying to understand. And one of the things he told me is, we have services where we intentionally do not preach the gospel. Okay, so you have services that you call church in which you intentionally do not preach the gospel. It's not even church. No way. Let me read to you a quote from one of my preaching students. I have I teach a preaching class, and it's quotes like this why I keep teaching. I want to quit because it's so much extra work. It's quotes like this that I that I keep teaching. This is a this is an undergraduate student who I'm teaching preaching to, and he asks me this. Listen to this question. The place I live in, Miami, is in a state of theological famine. All sorts of tricks, gimmicks are used in order to draw people in. I've been told by men who have pulled rank of 29 years of ministry that in order to reach people, you have to move away from Scripture and preach what is relevant. Now listen to that again. You have to move away from Scripture and preach what is relevant. These are Southern Baptist people in authority advising him like this. You have to move away from Scripture and preach what is relevant. Now here's his question. How is a young man like me at 36 years old looking to be faithful to take this advice? Well, you take it for what it is, garbage. That's not how I answered him. by the way. I'm a, little bold. I'm a little more bold in the point. No, I just sent him a, just a, a myriad of scriptures and said, just consider these. Look at what the Bible says. And, and think about that advice and look at what Paul's advice is. So the logic of wanting to see people saved, what you're going to do is you're going to eliminate the very means by which God uses to save them, namely the gospel. <laughs> to see Christians grow in the faith or be sanctified, you're going to eliminate or negate or at least dilute the very means God uses to sanctify them, namely the word of God. Problem number two, and this is quicker. Actually, this could be an, at least an hour, but I'm going to just give you the outline of it, and you can do your own work. One of the There's numerous problems with these kind of movements of seeking to add cultural relevance to the church, which is bizarre, rather than the church teaching the Bible and being what God says we are. One of the problems, one of the, and here's the theological problem. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I think you'll get the point. There's a massive theological misunderstanding here. They ignore or misunderstand why people don't come to Christ. They ignore or misunderstand why people don't come to Christ. People don't come to Christ because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. People don't come to Christ because they are blinded by the devil. 2 Corinthians four, four, People don't come to Christ because they are in the snare of the devil, captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2. No new methodology can or will change that. Only the gospel can change that. The very clear, preaching, open statement of the truth. That is how God removes spiritual blindness. That's how God gives life not some gimmick. Some gimmick cannot rescue someone from the bondage of sin. And see, that's why, that's why, that's why there's so much at stake in this issue. By, dil- by any kind of methodology that, that upholds a great value in cultural relevance and, and totally misses the very clear theology of the scripture <laughs> and thinks what we've got to do to deal with this problem is just come up with some no, new method has missed the supernatural reality that one must be born again by the Spirit of God to be saved. And that happens through the, the proclamation of the gospel. It's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. Or John 6, even stronger. This cultural relevance view has no, no place for a text like this where Jesus is actually dealing with these very issues in John 6. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. What's some method. Not some movie, not some gimmick. It's the Father's work. How do you reach millennials? It's an important question. Maybe the same way you reach baby boomers, or maybe the same way you reach the philosophical elite in the first century in Athens, or the homeless Jewish person in Jerusalem. You reach them with the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel and prayer and praying for them to be converted and saved and us proclaiming the gospel to them and calling them to believe and us showing them what the Bible says. Do you know what the word relevant means? You know, a dictionary is a very helpful tool. It means to be closely connected with. Another popular word I'm not gonna go into much is contextualization. Do you know what the prefix con means? Some of you know. What does con mean if you put it in front of a word? It means with. What, is, what does 2 Corinthians 6 say? Do not be unequally yoked. It's I mean, what fellowship? What partnership? What agreement? What portion? Do you not see what that says? Friends, I want to argue, especially based on the text that we looked at this morning, it's God's plan for his church to reach people with the gospel by being holy. And by being different, not by being like the world. It's it's quite the opposite of that. You You don't reach people in the world by being relevant, you reach people in the world by being an aberration. You know what the aberration is? The way we live. Our marriages are supposed to be an aberration from the worldly marriage, it's different, it's a witness. Our unusual abstinence, right? A Christian is going to unusually abstain from some things. For me, given my propensities and my past and my likes and my dislikes, for me to abstain from Game of Thrones is kind of unusual. And I have a reason to tell a person why I would do that. Because there's a holy God who demands a certain way of life. And I'll put no unclean things before my eyes. Our transformation, our good deeds, that's what is to be reaching the culture, not some idea of relevance that can be defined in a myriad of different ways. What you should do is proclaim the gospel and be holy. We'll pray God will use that to reach people for the truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of Christ, for the truth of scripture. Just pray that your word would resonate in our hearts, God, and that God, you'd give us wisdom to search the scripture and see if these things are true. God, you'd give uh, the people in this room a a zeal and a diligence to search the Scriptures, Lord, that they wouldn't merely take my words for what I've said. And and certainly I have errors, God. But rather we'd think critically of what you say and base what we believe on that and base our life on that. Help us do that today and this week, God. And help us to be ever more vigilant, to proclaim the truth, to do what you say, to do good works in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We call you to trust Jesus as Savior. That's the most important matter always. To turn from your sin. That God gave Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for our sins. He's raised power from the dead. He's Lord of all. And friends, he's going to judge every one of us. And he will bring you to the Father. He'll forgive all of your sins if you will trust Jesus to do that. So that's what you should do today. That's what we call you to do as we sing together.